The first story of tonight includes depictions of date rape, sexual assaults, physical assaults, and murder. There is also mention of suicide. If any of these things are something that you're not comfortable hearing about, something, some things that are very triggering for you, feel free to skip on to the second story by following the timestamp on the screen. Thanks, everyone. I met River last year during my first year of college. I'm a second year now. We were assigned as lab partners for a bio class we had together first semester. River was nice, polite, friendly, outgoing. She was a math major and clearly didn't want to be taking a bio class. It was a bio 101 class for first years, and River was two years ahead of me, so she was really just taking it to fill up some credits. Anyway, my point is, the impression she had on me was pretty good. We had another class together the next semester, this time in outfits, basically like a gym class. It only gives you one credit, but everyone has to take one to graduate. She seemed happy to see me, and we started talking. Outfit classes are stupid. You don't do anything useful. You walk laps or play basketball or fill out worksheets about muscles and shit. So basically, River and I had a lot of time to goof around during class. Over the course of the semester, I got to know her pretty well, I think. Eventually, we started hanging out after school. River never really opened up about her home life. Our whole campus was on quarantine lockdown anyway, so I guess she didn't think it mattered. Not going to see my family until the end of the semester anyway, she would tell me. Why talk about it? I shrugged. Fair enough. And that was that. She helped me navigate my first year of college, and honestly, I don't think I would have made it through without her. So, naturally, I asked if she wanted a room with me this year. She agreed, although she told me she could be... difficult. I told her it was fine. I don't mind having a difficult roommate, and that she could make it up to me by helping me around the campus and talk to people and stuff. I have really bad social anxiety, so sometimes River has to step in on my behalf. So, yeah, River is a difficult roommate, I'll admit that. She doesn't take out her trash on time, she doesn't fold laundry, she doesn't even make her bed, and she brings random tender dates home all the time. She does tell me ahead of time, and if I say not to, then she won't, but I don't want to be the fun police. River has a vibrant social life. I don't. It's okay, I guess. I have a couple of acquaintances, but... Nobody I would say I'm close to, except River. She is a terrible roommate, I will admit, but whenever I call her or ask her to come to an appointment with me or help me draft an email to a professor, or when I just feel lonely and miserable and need a friend, she's always here for me. Always. I try not to demand too much from her, but honestly, she doesn't seem to mind. Anyway, about three weeks ago, things started not adding up. It all started the night of the party. So yes, it, it was a frat party. I told River I wanted to go. I still don't know why, really. I just wanted to feel alive, I guess. Do something besides just classwork and being depressed. And also, I'd never been to a party before. When I told her, River raised an eyebrow at me and gave me a grin. Damn, really? Lynn Foster, going to a party. Oh, I have got to see this. It was around 9, and it was a Friday night, so it would probably go on well into the morning. Still, I found myself nervously showering and getting ready well before that, since my classes ended at 3 on Fridays and I had no other plans. After I showered, applied my makeup, and done my hair... I figured I was looking pretty good. I didn't have any dresses or anything to wear, so I just wore a t-shirt and shorts. You know, like a sexy casual look or something. Fuck, I don't know. At 8.30, River met me in front of our dorm building, giving me an approving once-over. Damn, Lynn, looking good. I smiled. Yeah? You think the guys will like it? River rolled her eyes. 
She had never dated men, and I could tell she didn't particularly like them in general. I think it's because of her home life, but I'm not sure. The guys? <laughs> yeah, she scoffed. The guys will like it, as you say. I didn't like the way she'd said that, but I knew she meant what she said. Good. I looked good. Of course, next to her, I looked fairly drab. River never wore makeup. She told me she didn't like it. Didn't even own any. And yet still, she always looked stunning. She never even wore anything fancy. I don't know how she always looks like a model. It's ridiculous. Anyway. That day was no different. She looked breathtaking. She wore a tank top, which was just tight enough that her abs were clearly visible underneath, under a leather jacket, unzipped, with dark-colored jeans, tight enough to show off her legs, but loose enough to be comfortable, and combat boots underneath. Her keys and pepper spray were clipped to her belt, and I know she always hides a switchblade in her boot. I'd never seen River dress up for anyone as long as I'd known her, and that night was no exception. Tank top, jeans, leather jacket. Classic River. Even though it was 8.30, the sun was still up. River's midnight black hair fell down to her waist in full, thick, glossy waves. And in the waning sunlights, I could have sworn her light brown skin glowed just a little bit. Like polished bronze, I found myself thinking. She turned toward me, raising her eyebrows as I stared at her. You good? I... (laughs) Yeah, I replied, snapping out of my revere. Good. Let's go get something to eat, and then we can head to the frats. Sound all right? I nodded, watching the dying sunlight illuminate her cheekbones and raise her sharp jawline. Sounds like a plan, I mumbled. And so we did. It was Friday evening, and all the restaurants around campus were pretty full, so eventually River and I found ourselves at a little bar next to an overfilled and understaffed Waffle House. Looks like if we want food, this is where we're going to have to get it, she told me apologetically. I sighed, following her to the bar, which seemed suspiciously empty. I wanted us to go sit in a corner by ourselves, but River walked straight up to the bar. To my surprise, she ordered normal food and water instead of alcohol. I sat next to her, tentatively ordering some generic burger with fries. The bartender walked into the back to get the stuff, and we were left alone. Well, besides the other few people in the bar, I guess. You didn't want a drink? I asked her. I don't drink at parties, she told me simply. Um, isn't that the entire point? River chuckled. I don't go to parties in general. If I want to have a good time, I hang out with a friend or open up Tinder. And why do you, of all people, want to go to one? I sighed, shrugging. Tired of being alone, I guess. River shook her head as the bartender returned with two plates, before beginning to tend to another customer. You're not alone, Lynn, and there are better ways to do this, you know. Better ways to have a fun night. You don't have to go to a frat party and get wasted. I knew that, of course. But I wanted to do this. I felt like I had to. I mean, it's part of the college experience, right? I told River as much, and she chuckled. Experience, huh? All right, well, I hope you have fun, then. I turned towards her, taking a bite of my burger. Aren't you coming? She nodded. Yeah, but it ain't really my thing. I don't like frat boys. I giggled, taking another bite of my burger. You don't like any boys, Riv. She shrugged, taking a sip of water. I consider that a blessing, honestly. I raised an eyebrow, but said nothing for a moment. Then, of course, I asked, Why? River took a moment before replying. I don't have good experiences with men. I know there's good ones out there and all that, but since I'm not attracted to them, I don't really care about finding one. I think trying to find a genuinely good guy is like looking for a needle in 20 haystacks, you know? With women, it's like 5 or 10 haystacks, maybe. (laughs) Seems more convenient to be into men, though, I told her. Easier to find a partner. She shrugged. Quality over quantity, huh? Was all she said. 
We ate in silence for a few minutes before a stranger walked into the bar, plopping himself down next to River. There were at least five other free seats at the bar, and he had chosen that one. I hoped he wouldn't try to flirt with her. Guys usually didn't, honestly. Apparently some of them didn't like women with muscle or with River's personality. She's intimidating if you don't know her, I guess. She's also way out of their leagues, usually. And I think she knows it. Hey there, said the guy. His voice was slurred, and he was clearly drunk. You come here often? I haven't seen you in here before. River gave him an indifferent shrug. First time, she replied. I can see why nobody comes here. This place sucks. The bartender shot her a glare, and she smiled apologetically. The guy chuckled. Sucks so much, then why are you still here? You want to get out of here, maybe? No, thanks, she replied evenly. Why don't you go check another bar? The guy sighed. He sounded disappointed and very, very drunk. Listen, I just really love your hair, you know? It looks really soft. I almost choked on my water, holding it a laugh. This guy was really trying, and doing a terrible job, too. I felt kind of bad for him, but he was being a bit of a creep. Then he reached out and grabbed a fistful of River's hair. Not fast or violently, he just kind of reached out and grabbed some, like he wanted to run his fingers through it. Immediately, I felt River tense beside me. Don't touch me, was all she said. Her voice was emotionless, cold as steel. The guy giggled. I tried flagging down the bartender or something, but she suddenly wasn't there. Neither was the bouncer, which definitely struck me as odd. The drunk man laughed and yanked at River's hair, roughly grabbing a fistful of it, and then he pulled her toward him, reaching around with his other arm to grope at her chest. Oh, fuck, was all I could think. If there's one thing River hates more than anything, it's being touched in any way without her permission, especially by strangers, and double especially by men. All the tension in River's body was released in one fluid moment. It happened so fast that I didn't even see her move, really. One second she was there in the man's grasp, and the next, she wasn't. I saw her legs move, one of them kicking her stool backward into the man's stomach while her other legs stayed firmly on the ground. She was bouncing on it, I realized later. The man let go of her as the stool hit him in the gut and there was a soft click as River's switchblade flicked open. I hadn't even seen her get it out of her boot, but there it was. By now, everyone in the bar was staring, but oddly enough, nobody moved. River was kneeling. The man was on the floor with fear in his eyes and a knife at his chin. Her knee was on his chest and she was holding a fistful of his hair with one hand and her switchblade in the other, the tip touching just below his chin. Touch anyone like that ever again and I'll gut you like a fish. Do you understand? Her voice was calm and even, cold as ice. The man choked out an answer that I couldn't hear. It seemed to satisfy River. She stood up, closing her switchblade and turning back to me. Come on, Lynn, she said in a friendly tone as though nothing had just happened. We're leaving. It was not a request. River was leaving now, whether I went with her or not. So, I followed her. I sure didn't want to be alone with the drunk guy anyway. As soon as we walked out the door, I heard conversation resume in the bar, completely casually. It was like nothing had happened. It was as though they hadn't even seen a man get threatened with literal death in front of them. You wouldn't really gut him, would you? I asked uncertainly. Also, what if someone calls the police? River scoffed. <laughs> Nobody's going to call the police, Lynn. A guy harassed me and I defended myself. That's all there is to it. I nodded easily. I had a feeling that, although what River said was true, there was something I was missing here. 
something was wrong. Why had the bartender and the bouncer vanished? Why didn't anybody move a muscle the entire time? Why didn't anyone seem to see what was happening? Something was off, and I didn't know what. Still, I trusted River. She'd never given me a reason not to. Anyway, as we arrived at the frat house, I tried to pull it all out of my mind. I was here to have a good time, to feel alive, to not be alone. The first couple of hours were completely uneventful, but kind of nice. I danced to music that was too loud, drinking far more alcohol than I should have been, and had more confidence than I ever had. River had disappeared somewhere, probably fucking some girl she met at this party, I thought. People around me were kissing, groping, smoking weed. It was a fairly tame party, honestly, but it was the wildest thing I've done in my cookie-cutter life. Then I found John. Or rather, he found me. He sat next to me in my chem class, and he was looking cute. I mean, maybe it was the alcohol talking, but he looked fine as hell. Hey, Lynn, I sit next to you and Kim. I didn't know you were the partying type. He laughed. We made small talk for bed until my beer ran out. Don't you worry, girl, I'll go get you another one, was all John said, and then he was gone. He brought me a fresh bottle and we kept talking. And then it turned into flirting. And then he kissed me. You want to get out of here? I nodded before he even finished the sentence, so we walked out of the party hand in hand. And then I started to feel sick. Lightheaded, dizzy, head-pounding, nauseous kind of sick. I stumbled against a wall, suddenly realizing I didn't actually recognize where we were. I'd been too busy looking at John. My vision was fading in and out. I was terrified. What the hell happened? Had someone spiked my drink? Had John? No, he wouldn't. Right? My sight had faded to black entirely. I couldn't move. Two sets of strong hands lifted me up and carried my limp body for a few minutes before I heard the sound of a car unlocking. Just dump her in the trunk. It was John's voice. I wanted to throw up. This can't be happening, I thought. And then I was tossed into the trunk of the car like a sack of trash. And then I passed out. I woke up in a dorm room, and I was lying on the floor, naked. I didn't recognize the beds, the furniture, but I knew I was at least on campus. Looking around groggily, I tried to find my clothes and failed. I have to call the police, I thought. I have to find my phone. I vomited onto the ground several times as I tried to stand up, and my ears were ringing constantly. My clothes were nowhere to be seen. I did find my phone, though. The screen was shattered, the case was cracked in two, and the SIM card lay outside next to it in a heap of broken pieces, as though someone had taken a hammer to it. I tried opening the door to the room, to no avail, obviously. Head still spinning, I pounded on the door, not particularly expecting it to work. To my surprise, a voice outside called out, Hey, are you alright in there? Call the police! Call the fucking cops! I devolved into a coughing fit, collapsing to the ground as the ringing in my ears intensified. Jesus Christ, there's a girl trapped in there! It was a different voice, then muffled conversation. Yeah, there's a girl trapped in our building. She's been, uh, kidnapped, I think. Look, just, you need to get over here. I heard someone speaking into the phone indistinctly. It's an emergency, I swear to God, you piece of... A pause. You fucking hung up on me. Thinks I'm bullshitting. You guys have to call too, otherwise... 
the cops won't do anything. That voice. I didn't recognize it anywhere. It made my heart drop into my stomach and turned my insides to lead. John. Listen, you guys need to get out of here, John was saying. Then his voice dropped, and all I heard were muffled whispers. Okay, okay. It was the first voice, the one who originally asked me if I was alright. A second later, the door was flung open, throwing me backwards. The hallway was empty. Nobody was there now but John. Hey, Lenny. He snarled. He thought you were so smart. Yelling for help the second you woke up. The goddamn cops could be here any second. And He let out a frustrated growl before backhanding me across the face. In my current state, I couldn't even react to the pain beyond letting out a small whimper. God damn it, John was muttering. You fucking bitch. He backhanded me again, and I felt blood trickle down the side of my face as bolts of white-hot pain shot through my head. Two guys walked into the room, leering down at me. Standing up, John turned to them. Pick her up. We need to move her. Now. How's she even awake, man? I thought you said 24 hours. I don't fucking know, Greg. I don't fucking know. Just move. Two familiar sets of hands picked me up and I passed out again. The next time I awoke, my head felt much clearer. It wasn't throbbing or ringing anymore, at least. I was in another dorm room, identical to the last. I screamed as I sat up, seeing a man standing just a few feet from me. Hey, hey, I'm Greg, okay? Listen, I know you hate me, okay, but I'm here to help. John doesn't even know I'm here. I spat at him, unable to move much. My body still felt sluggish and numb. I just wanted to give you this, Greg told me. He handed me a phone. A phone? I stared up at him, disbelieving. He didn't meet my gaze. I'm sorry, was all he said. He walked out of the room, not closing the door behind him. I stood up shakily and found my clothes lying on a bench beside me. I put them on fast as my shaky, spasming body would allow before leaving the building. Thank God I didn't run into John on the way out. I found myself in an area I recognized one of the smaller dorms on the outskirts of campus. I tried calling 911, but nobody answered. Is that even possible? How could nobody answer? Whatever. I didn't have time to think about it. I knew that, feeling the way I did, I couldn't walk to the campus hospital. I'd pass out long before that. So, I made a beeline for my dorm, needing to go somewhere... Familiar, somewhere safe. It was fairly close, and I was reasonably confident that I could make it. And I did. Barely. It was around 6 a.m., so nobody was really around to see me. Thank God for that. I found my key card is still in my jeans pocket, and I made my way back to my room, shaking violently. Walking in, I found the empty room. River's bed was cold and unmade, meaning she hadn't slept there last night. Wait, River? Fuck, she's probably looking for me, I thought. She'd completely escaped my mind until now. I suddenly realized how badly I needed to not be alone, how badly I needed a friend, how badly I needed someone to be there for me. How badly I needed River. I picked up my phone with shaking hands, dialing River's number. She probably wouldn't pick up at 6am, I figured. But she did. She picked up on the first ring. Lynn? River. I choked out, then my voice broke and I began sobbing. River, I need you here. Come back. I... I couldn't say anything. I couldn't find the words. I began sobbing, saying nothing. I'm coming. Stay on the phone, 
Okay, you hear me? Stay on the phone. I couldn't hear much on the other end after that. I lay on the ground in a fetal position, sobbing. Maybe ten minutes later, River burst through the door in jeans and a tank top. Where was her jacket? I didn't ask. Her light chocolate brown eyes flashed in the dim light of our room, looking around frantically until they landed on me curled up in the middle of the floor. I sat up feebly, and River's expression darkened. Who did this to you? I sobbed, saying nothing. River didn't ask me again. Instead, she sat down next to me, put her arms around me, tucked a strand of hair behind my ear, and pulled me close to her. For the first time since this entire incident, I actually felt... safe. The next day, I told her what happened. She seemed quite upset that I had left the party with John without telling her, and I guess she had the right to be. It was stupid. I went to the police with River, but they told us it was all just hearsay. Josh had washed me thoroughly. There was no trace of his... his DNA left on me, or... In me, I guess I should say. No trace but the constant pain between my legs and the bruises and cuts all over my body. The police didn't give a shit. They gave me a form to fill out and sent me on my way. I told them to search the buildings and they told me they already had and found... Absolutely nothing. River hadn't said much the whole time. Her expression told me that this was about what she had expected. Later that night, River asked me something that should have thrown up some flags, but didn't. Not at the time. What's John's last name? Smythe, I replied. Okay. That was it. Okay. That was all she said. The next day, that was when it got weird. That's when people started dying. Gerald Zeno was the first. A suicide, the school paper said. Normal enough. College students commit suicide all the time. Nothing super noteworthy, I guess. That's fucked up. I remember thinking without giving it any more thought. (sighs) Until I saw the picture above the short article. It was the guy that had harassed River in the bar the other night. I was sure of it. He looked better dressed and better groomed, but it was definitely him in the picture. I didn't draw the connection. Not then. Weird coincidence, I thought. Skimming the article, I noted that it said he leapt off the roof of one of the taller dorm buildings, that his neck and spine had been fractured or shattered in several places, killing him instantly. However, the thing they couldn't explain was how his stomach got sliced open during the fall. Maybe he hit a metal beam. Maybe he hit a tree or something. Whatever the case, his stomach was sliced open and his intestines and entrails were splayed all around him, splattering everywhere when he'd landed. It looked like he'd been gutted. That was the gist, anyway. But the paper would never write that. Our school could never write that. They never wrote anything as graphic as that. And how could they rule it a suicide if the man had literally been gutted? Wait. Gutted. I should have put this together earlier, I thought. If you ever touch anyone like that ever again, I'll gut you like a fish. (laughs) But there was no way. Right? River couldn't do this. 
right? I asked other people about the article and the suicide that day. Some people agreed it was weird, but nobody seemed to see it as just wrong. A man was gutted by a tree branch or a metal beam? (laughs) Seriously? Nobody seemed to give a shit. And the school paper had literally printed this graphic, gory description. None of this made any sense. They found another body the next day. Greg Simmons, they said the name was. As soon as I read Greg, I knew what I was going to see. Yep. The picture was definitely the guy who gave me a phone and helped me escape from John. He was found hanged in his apartment, the article said. His stomach was sliced open, his intestines removed entirely. Apparently the wall behind him also said, I'm so sorry, scrawled in his own blood. As for what he was hanged with, wasn't a rope. It was his own intestines. The article concluded that it was bizarre, but ultimately said he was just a nutcase who went crazy and did it to himself. That. Nobody would buy that. But when I talked to people, nobody seemed to care. Nobody. River, for her part, was completely unfazed by the entire thing. If she really is the one doing all this, then she's damn good at hiding it. Two suicides in two days. This should have been a big deal, I think, but no. Nothing. No cops anywhere, no media, no news. Nothing. It was as though nothing had happened at all. Memories were coming back to me about the two days I was drugged out, and they weren't pleasant. Honestly, when I remembered what they'd done to me, how they'd done it, I can't say I really mourn any of their deaths. Even Greg. He may have helped me escape in the end, but he had his share of fun with me beforehand, for sure. Yeah. There was nothing to mourn. And then, there was the third death. I forget his name, but it was definitely the other guy who was with John. I remember him being the roughest with me, even rougher than John. He caused most of the bruises. Piece of shit. Well, John used a knife, and... That guy used his fist, so I don't know who I hate more, really. Either way, both of them had used me in horrible, terrible ways, and the more my memories returned, the more I felt like this series of killings, sorry, suicides, wasn't particularly undeserved. I honestly can't say I felt any remorse when I heard about that guy's death, despite how brutal it was. They said he walked into the middle of the highway and got hit by an 18-wheeler. Suicide. Of course. But we can't leave the campus during quarantine, and the nearest highway is at least five miles away from campus. So how was his body found in his dorm room, in his bed? The article said it was odd. The way he was now, almost like he had been run over repeatedly. His bones had been ground into a fine powder as though someone had taken the time to slowly put different parts of his body under some sort of hydraulic press, slowly and methodically grinding the bones to dust, turning the body into nothing but a pool of bloody powder and shredded flesh. They said the head was the only part not crushed. Whatever had happened had started at the feet and worked its way up. They wanted him to be alive and conscious right until the end.
And over the next few days, there were a few guys I'd never heard of, all killed in similarly gruesome ways. All ruled as suicides. All swept under the rug as no big deal. And then, the most recent one. John. He just died yesterday. His death wasn't ruled a suicide, unlike all the others. John had been castrated, then apparently immediately had the wound cauterized with hot iron. Same for his toes, fingers, his legs, his arms, and even his tongue. John had been left as nothing but a dickless torso with no tongue, still alive. They say that he was alive for almost one full week in that state. He'd been tortured throughout the entire two weeks the others were all found, and then left for dead afterwards for a week. That was the theory. They found him in a stall in the woman's bathroom somewhere in the arts building. He was upside down with his head stuck in the toilet. The cause of death was, at first glance, drowning. They found his fingers and toes later that day, all in trash bags, left outside his old dorm room with a note that simply read, Remember to take out your trash. As hypothesized, all limbs were severed at all joints. His fingers were cut into three knuckle pieces, and his toes too. His legs were cut at the knees and so on. You get the idea. Yeah. One thing wasn't found, though. His penis. And then they found it, lodged in his drowned throat, blocking his windpipe. The cause of death was changed from drowning to asphyxiation. I probably threw up three times reading that article, but at the same time, some part of me was... relieved. Relieved he was gone, that he was really dead. Nobody has been found today, though, so I'm wondering if all the trash has been taken out. But anyway. River is acting exactly the same as ever, and I don't know how to feel about that. She's worried and concerned and supportive. She asks all the right questions and says all the right things. I know this is going to sound crazy after all I said, but I swear to God she genuinely cares about me. Please, guys. I need advice. I don't know what the fuck to do. I haven't even been to my classes in a month because of this shit. Luckily, I can submit assignments online. I'm just so fucking freaked out about how everyone's acting about it. Please, tell me I'm not crazy. That's all I want to know, really. I want to know that I'm not going crazy. Well, just about ten minutes ago, I got a bit of an answer. I was looking through River's clothes drawer, not snooping, I swear. I was just looking for one of the tank tops I thought she accidentally put in there, and I found a shoebox. I opened it, and several student ID cards fell out. I think you can hazard a guess as to who. Is my roommate like fucking Dexter for rapists or something? Even if she is, how can she manipulate the whole campus into seeing all these suicides? Except John, which was labeled as a freak accident in spite of the clear references to human torture, as a normal thing. Also, should I be scared of her? Because at the moment, I don't feel like I'm in any danger at all. I mean, she is super nice to me. One might even say we're best friends. So, what the fuck do I do? Help me.
I only met Aaron Galt once. I was called in to do a forensic interview of the girl as part of a 72-hour observation period before she was turned over to juvenile justice and sent to a detention center based on the warrants that had been taken the day before. Stepping into the room with her, I felt a wave of sadness and confusion wash over me. Erin was 16 and small for her age. Her chart put her at 5'4 and just over 90 pounds. And when she looked up, her expression wasn't that of a hardened killer or a deranged monster. It was that of a very frightened and fragile young woman, flinching at sharp edges of a hostile world. And yet, and yet, according to what I'd been told, two days before, she'd butchered her entire family. This had happened at their home, a two-story house in a pleasant neighborhood outside the city. The yard was always cut, the family was well-liked and well-thought of, and even as I sat down across from her, I learned of no hint of trouble within this family prior to their deaths. No domestic calls, no reports of children acting out at school, nothing more than a break-in a couple of years earlier. It didn't rule out abuse, of course, and abuse was a common catalyst in these kinds of scenarios, but only one of many. My hope was, through talking to Erin, I could learn why she'd done these terrible, terrible things. I introduced myself, explained that while this interview was part of an observation period for her safety, it was also part of an ongoing investigation, that while I was in law enforcement, anything we talked about wouldn't be privileged, and it might be used against her later on. She nodded and said that that was fine, that she'd talked to her appointed lawyer and guardian about it already. She said she was ready to answer any questions I had. We went through the initial report building and introductory questions, and Erin was cooperative enough. She was still skittish acting, her eyes frequently darting to walls before lighting back on me for a few moments as I asked my next question. But she seemed happy to have someone to talk to, even if it was a stranger. I took her through initial questions about her family, who they'd been, where they worked, how she got along with them. Erin grew very sad during this part, sniffling and pausing frequently without ever shutting down or refusing to answer. I had this idea of her carefully threading her way through a new canyon of guilt and pain and bad memories, though whether she was recalling the murders themselves or something that precipitated them, I couldn't say. Still, when I asked the opening, non-suggestive questions relating to any kind of abuse, there were no indicators of reluctance or defensiveness or lying. Just a soft no, nothing like that. No one has ever hurt me like that. I could be wrong, but I believed her. So I tried a different approach. Rather than drill down into the murders themselves, what she remembered, could she explain what happened and why? I simply asked what else she wanted to tell me. The transcript that follows details that portion of my conversation with Aaron Galt. So, Aaron... Part of my job is getting answers to certain questions, but I also want to know what you have to say. So let's take a break from me quizzing you, okay? What do you want to tell me? Anything at all about whatever you'd like. Something that's on your mind, or important, or that you think I need to know. This won't be your only chance to tell me stuff during our interview, of course, but I'm interested in hearing what you want to talk about. I'm going to go grab a drink while you think about it. Do you want anything? Um, no, thank you. Okay, honey, I'll be right back. That's better. Any thoughts on what you'd like to tell me? Yeah, yeah, I I know what I need to tell you. It probably won't help you understand, but it's true, and I need to tell somebody if you listen. Of course I will. Go ahead. 
I'd never tried astral projection before. I, I'd heard of it, sure. Watched videos about it when I was bored, that kind of thing. But my friend Hugo, he was always the one really into that shit. Uh, stuff. He would try to do seances. He'd read books on trances and ESP. He'd even tried to do a spell a couple of times. I went along with some of it, sure, but I never believed any of it. It was just to make him happy because, you know, he was my friend. Sure, sure. <laughs> and did he try to get you into astral projection? Yeah. This was like a, a month ago. We were up in his room. His mom wasn't home, which is the only reason we could be up there like that. Not that we weren't hooking up or anything. I think maybe he likes me a little, but we weren't like that. I, I don't like him like that. Okay, I understand. But he is my best friend. And when he told me about this new book he'd read on astral projection, it sounded kind of cool. Almost just like meditation or something, right? Something real instead of the ghost stuff he was usually into. And when he asked me if I'd tried with him, I said yes. So he laid down on the floor of his room side by side but not touching. And he talked to me. Told me what to picture, what words to repeat in my head. Said that I didn't need to concentrate. That the book said it wasn't about holding on, it was about letting go. I went down and down and the rooms started to get weirder. The walls were the wrong shape and the floors would seem longer or shorter than they should be. I started to find doors that were closed where they'd all been open and it got harder and harder to push through. Still, I was determined. This was all really cool and special, and it made me feel really happy because it made me feel special too. I know this all sounds dumb, but I'm telling the truth. I trust you, Aaron. I don't think this is dumb at all. Go on, please. Okay, thanks. Um, so I get to the point where the rooms are moving some, like the walls change places and corners don't stay where they are and... Sometimes it feels like I'm in something alive, like the rooms are breathing around me. It's a bit spooky, but I don't want to give up. I had this idea that I'm close to finding something really important, so I keep going. That's when I find the green door. Everything else had been kind of gray, like an old movie or something. No colors or Maybe it was just because it was all so dark, but that door wasn't dark. I could see it from across the room when I came down the stairs, a little bit of glowing green like an emerald, winking at me, saying, Come here, come here. So I went. This door was different than the others. They'd all been plain. They reminded me of the doors in our house, I guess, just regular doors, but this one was all carved and polished. With a big brass knob in the middle of the door, there was a picture. It was carved into the wood, and it kept changing as I watched. I, I don't remember what it was now. It was so many things, and I can't keep them in my head, but I know it made me happy and afraid at the same time. And when I grabbed the knob... It was hot on my hand. Hot enough that I was afraid it might burn me if I wasn't quick, so I turned it. The door opened, and I went through. I wasn't in a house now. The floor was rock, and I couldn't see any walls to the side or in front of me. Maybe it was a cave. I don't know. It went on for a long time. It felt like I'd been walking for hours by then, but I wasn't tired, and I wanted to see what was next. I started to see light ahead. I was close to, I think, it was a field. A field that was bright and blue with red grass and white trees that grew in every direction. 
up and down, side to side, weaving through each other as they went. Except they weren't just trees. They were buildings. This was some huge, beautiful city. Some kind of impossible place, like where fairies might live. I felt this pure kind of... Sounds cheesy, but it was joy. Joy and, like, longing. Like I finally had found something really special and true. I was about to start running toward it when I stopped. There was a noise behind me. Something had moved somewhere in the dark. I could feel myself start to panic as I turned around. Its eyes were on me. Six glowing eyes, like spinning coins, drawing me in, draining me of that happiness and hope. I couldn't move. But the darkness moved around me, shifting the light of that bright living city behind me, the gloom of that thing that was now blocking my way. I didn't know what it was, but I kind of did, too. I think it's like this little dog we used to have. Puppers. He'd never been out in a bad storm, but he still knew to be afraid of them. Like he could smell how dangerous it was. I... I could tell how bad this thing was, so I ran. Running there wasn't like real running. I made my way back way faster than I went down, too fast, and I could feel that thing behind me. I I should have taken more time. I should have made sure I shut the doors behind me, but I was scared, so, so scared. Then, and, do you need to take a break? No, I, no, I want to finish it, so you understand. I, I went all the way back up, and when I opened my eyes, I was back in Hugo's bedroom. He was sitting on his bed with a worried look on his face. He told me that the astral projection stuff hadn't worked for him. He tried for a few minutes before giving up, but I'd been laying there for nearly two hours. At first, he thought I'd just gone to sleep, but when he couldn't wake me up, he'd gotten scared, but was also worried about waking me up if I was really doing it. Said he was giving me a few more minutes and then he was just going to try and wake me up again before calling someone for help. He laughed when he said that last, but he wasn't joking. Not about any of it. He asked me what happened, what I'd seen, but I told him I needed to think about it first and then we could talk. Hugo didn't push it, though I could tell that he wanted to. Now that he saw I was okay, he was getting more excited again, and he was disappointed when I told him I needed to head home. Because I wasn't okay. I remembered all of that that I just told you, and my heart was still beating like I was being chased by that thing with the glittering eyes. It was two days before I got any sleep, and even then, it was never good rest. Hugo kept texting to check on me to see if I was willing to share what had happened and I lied, telling him I was fine. After a week, I changed my mind about telling him about it, too. I just lied and said I didn't remember anything, that I must have just fallen asleep. Was there any reason in particular that you chose not to tell Hugo about what you'd seen? Yeah. I... I started to see holes in the walls. Just little things at first. Little red, rotten spots like a cold sore or an ingrown hair, but on the wall. Not a particular wall. It might be at school in the locker room or on the side of the house or my bedroom. But it would be there. This little raw, bumpy hole that I could tell no one else could see or touch. Every day it got bigger. What was it? I don't know for sure, but 
After a month, I saw the hole somewhere, almost everywhere I went. Not always in the same spot, but always somewhere around. It was following me, and it was getting bigger. The edges of it looked black now. Like it was burned or dying, and there were little bubbles of white all along that rotten part that would move a little. Not like the way the rooms breathed. This was wrong feeling. A sick little shudder that made my brain hurt when I saw those pus bags or whatever start to shift. It got so bad, I was afraid to look around much, and I was so tired by that point, I found myself falling asleep randomly. Losing time. She looked up from the table, her eyes red and her lips pressed thin as she met my gaze. And then one night I woke up covered in blood. My parents' blood. Jake's blood. Her face began to crumple. I think... I think I'm done now. Nodding silently, I reached out and patted her arm. I wanted to comfort her. Her story wasn't true, of course, some fantasy she'd constructed to cope with the horrors of what she'd done and experienced, but I had little doubt that she believed it herself. Whatever crime she'd committed, she was a very disturbed girl who needed treatment, and when I left the interview room, I was determined to help her get it. The next day, I got the call that she'd killed herself. That was nearly three years ago. A day hasn't gone by since that I don't think about Aaron and feel a measure of guilt, questioning if I'd done something different that might have helped more. Wondering if there was some missing puzzle piece that would give the whole thing shape and make more sense. Then I got a call from Bill Burke. Bill had been the primary investigator on the Galt case. He was a good cop and a good man, and having worked with him on several cases over the years, I had a sense of how deeply disturbed he was by how everything had turned out with Aaron. It had been over a year since we'd last talked, and when he called, I assumed it was about a new case. No, none like that. I actually retired last week. In fact, that's why I'm calling you now. I wanted to call before, but I told myself there was no sense in putting my job at risk. No one here wanted to hear what I had to say, and I worried that telling you might only stir things back up again. I knew what he was talking about without him saying. <laughs> this is about Aaron Galt, isn't it? I could feel his weariness as he sighed into the phone. <sighs> yeah. I, well... I know I told you some of the details of what happened before you went to the interview with her, but I had some ideas I kept to myself. Some of that was confirmed the next week when we got the autopsy report back. Okay. Like what? He cleared his throat uncomfortably. Likely, only one of the Galts was killed in their sleep. Her little brother Jake had his throat slit, and based on the injury, the arterial spray in the bedroom, and the lack of defensive wounds, it's likely he never woke up. <laughs> Shit, well, I guess that's better than the alternative. Yeah, I guess it is. But the doctor also said that both of the parents had been stabbed multiple times in the neck and chest, with additional defensive wounds on their arms and hands. The dad died in the hallway, the mom in the master bedroom behind a locked door that had been broken in. Oh, God. I know, but that's not all. The blood spray on the walls. Our crime scene guy thinks they were standing up when they were trying to fight her off, and were still standing up when they started getting stabbed. Okay. The significance of this to me is that the stab wounds were all at a downward angle. Now, Rex Gaunt was a six-foot-tall, 250-pound man. Clarice Gaunt was about five-foot-seven and weighed about 150, yet somehow this little 90-pound girl that was barely five-four managed to not only overpower them when they were fighting, but stab them like she was taller than they were. 
I felt my mouth going dry. Oh no. So you think she didn't do it? Someone else was in the house? I felt tears welling up in the corner of my eyes. Fuck, that poor girl, she... No, I think she did it. At least in a manner of speaking. She was covered in their blood. The two knives only had her fingerprints, and there was no trace of any other person being in that house. Yeah, maybe so, but if what you're saying is true, how could she possibly... I know, I thought the same thing. Even after she... Well, after Aaron was dead... I still went through all the evidence, went back to the crime scene, subpoenaed phone records, the whole nine yards. I was already getting static for wasting resources on a cold case, but I didn't care. I was half convinced from the autopsy report that someone else had done the killings, and I wasn't about to let it go until I was sure one way or the other. His voice had grown rough with emotion. It took a few days, but I finally got a disc in the mail with the cloud video from the Galt streaming security cameras. They'd put two outside and one inside after a break in a couple of years earlier. And my hope was that it would give me the proof I needed to show what had really happened the night of the murders. Did it? You tell me. I just sent you a link to the cloud folder I uploaded it to. Can't you just tell me? I don't know if I want to watch it. I won't even know what I'm looking for. You'll know. I showed it to my bosses and those sons of bitches saw it too. They just didn't want to admit it or deal with it. Told me to turn over everything and get back to work on my active cases. I did. But I kept a copy, too. Maybe just so I could do this. Share it with you, so I wasn't the only one who knew what happened that night. Just... Go check your email, Paul. I went to say more, but he'd already hung up. I've written this account from my own records, and to put my own thoughts down on paper, but also maybe so it can be shared someday. I've tried to recall everything accurately, and I think for the most part I've done a good job. My memory of the video, which I've now watched dozens of times, is perhaps the clearest of my memories, and yet it is also the one most clouded with emotions. Confusion, sadness, and most of all fear. So I'll end this account with my summary of what I observed in that video, free of any editorializing or follow-up commentary. I've had no luck reaching Bill again, and my own speculations are just that. The failings of a desperate mind wanting to apply reason to the impossible. Trying to shut doors that have already been left open for far too long. So I leave it to you, the reader, to draw your own conclusions from what is described below. The video is from the interior security camera, which has apparently been positioned in a high corner of what looks like the Gaunt's living room. The living room is dark, but the house has an open floor plan, and the camera also shows a large kitchen lit by a hanging light over the sink. No people are visible at first, and... Overall, the scene is still. Then Aaron enters the room from the right, wearing a white t-shirt and blue shorts. She enters from the dark of the living room, so at first it's hard to notice how strange she seems. Parts of her body are blocked by furniture and shadow, and it isn't until she passes into the kitchen that I can see that her head is lolling to one side as though she is asleep or unconscious. Despite this, she makes her way over to the kitchen counter and pulls two large knives from a butcher block. Blade pointed down in each uphold of hands, her silhouette looks like a drowsing praying mantis as she glides back toward the right on path to exit the kitchen for some other room or hallway. It's at this point I notice the smoothness of her motion, 
and a moment later that I'm able to see her lower legs and feet for the first time. My first panic thought is that she's somehow walking on tiptoe like a ballerina, but as I pause it and rewind it several times, and no. Her feet aren't touching the ground at all. Judging the height of the things around her in her own shadow, she looks to be floating about a foot off the ground, her motion forward smooth and seamless, even as her head rolls and her arms lift and sway in a strange, almost boneless fashion. It was that incongruity that caught my attention after the initial shock and fear wore off. That was what led me to have the video cleaned up further by a friend of mine. She complimented whoever had done the special effects, said that even after studying it, she wasn't sure how they'd done it. I just thanked her and hung up the phone. The enhanced video was clearer, but no less disturbing. I could see finer detail now, like how Aaron's eyes were closed when her face turned toward the camera, or how the floor creaked softly at times despite the girl's feet being free of the floor or the slight rustle of her shirt's fabric and compression of her skin in a dozen different places along her arms and legs and torso, as though she was being carried along by some unseen thing. Her limbs worked like a marionette as she drifted toward the night that would end her family, her joy, and her life. I paused the video in that moment, just a second before she passed into the dark, and I studied it for a long time looking for some hint of the thing that had caught her and was using her so cruelly. Aside from the carry marks, at first I saw nothing, and then there was something new. Motion on the frozen frame. Two lines of twinkling gold turned toward me, looking out from that captured moment of that terrible night. I want to believe... It was a glitch of my computer or my fraying imagination, but I knew better. I know I intend this to be an objective observation, but I know what I saw and felt. Those golden lights, those eyes, hadn't been there before. And they weren't just looking toward the camera. They were looking at me. I don't understand any of this, and I want no further part. I've erased my versions of the video, but I now realize it's not enough. This thing wanted to be seen and known. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been. And if I can't show others what I've seen, telling them will have to do. So perhaps this is enough. And perhaps you feel tricked as you reach the end. I did tell you I would end this with my description of the video, after all. Unblemished by my own conclusions. My own sleepless terrors. And I'm sorry for that deception. I truly am. But my hope is that if I satisfy it, it will leave me alone. Because I've started losing time. Waking up places I don't remember going, and sometimes, more frequently in the last few days, I've started to see them. Aaron's holes. Or maybe it's all just one hole, a rotting necrosis in the skin of the world as something pushes its way through. I'm watching it as I write this. And it's getting bigger. Bigger.